Hej Vanessa. Hej Vanessa. Hej Adam. Hello. Hey, guess what? We're listen- you're listening to Uncertain Things, the podcast. Guess what? I got it in there super fast. Wow, almost like a professional podcast. Almost. <laughs> We're on our way. We're on our way. Today we have Yashika Dot. Yeah, this was such a fun conversation with Yashika. Yashika is a friend, a colleague, and a wonderful journalist. Mm-hmm. She recently published a book called Coming Out as Dalit, in which she explores her journey of coming to terms with her closeted identity as somebody born to the Dalit caste, which is one, if not the lowest rung category in the Indian caste system. People born into this category can expect to suffer a lot of prejudice, discrimination, stigma, and throughout most of her life, Yashika and her family have pretended to belong to a different caste, a higher caste, all while hearing people tell her that the caste system doesn't really exist anymore, or at least doesn't have any bearing on her prospects. So in her book, she takes a fantastically nuanced look at not just the history of caste and its current place in Indian society, but also the way that it is being misunderstood in the West. And then to just complicate things even further, she shows how some Western scholarship, even very well-meaning, can be used by upper-caste Indian scholars to brush off their own culpability in the history of caste exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the book is really, really fantastic. It was really such a pleasure to get to read something that I, I remember when Yashka was was writing it, and I knew how much she struggled with it, and really the results are are remarkable. If, you know, usually when somebody tells me like, oh, I'm in my early 30s and I made a memoir, I'd be like, why? That is insane. But in this case, it's completely deserving. Her story is completely deserving of of a memoir, not just because, like you said, it, not just because of her story itself being so compelling, her, the, her journey to kind of learning to embrace her Dalit identity, but also all in the ways that she brings in all these intersections with with politics, with history. And, and the nice thing about this conversation is that we kind of got to expand beyond the scope of her book and bring in some of her more re- recent writings. We get to talk about uh, a New York Times article she wrote about casteism in Silicon Valley, her review of uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, which um, for all of its many... Uh, ad- for, for all of its strengths, Yashika kind of points out some of its weaknesses, which is quite interesting. Um, and I'd like to recommend one thing to our listeners. Apart from getting the book. Apart from getting the book and apart from subscribing to uncertain.substack.com. <laughs> so you're going to recommend three things. <laughs> Four, because I should also recommend following us on Uncertain Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Aside from these, I recommend coming to this conversation with an open mind. It's very tempting to understand what Yashika is talking about through our current American political terminology, because a lot of it is kind of baked into how she talks about, say, identity and disparities, power struggles, concepts like code switching or passing. A lot of those terminologies that we, we, we do know very well from our current political climate. However, things are different. I, I, I got to say, this listening to Yashika tell her story sometimes stumps you because you're over eager to jump on it with your pre-existing notions of right and left, identitarian versus Mm -hmm. libertarian or whatever. And you realize that those pictures don't map on exactly because it's a little more complicated than that. And as Yashika says, there is no simple villain and there is no simple narrative by which you can understand who's right, who's wrong. And that's part of what was so wonderful reading the book and hearing her talk about this. Yep. Yep. With that in mind, we hope you enjoy.
Yashika, hey. <laughs> hey. It's a bleeding snowstorm outside yeah, and, and, and we're snow? having tea together. My tea suspiciously well, smells like coffee. We are having tea together. I actually worked out in the snow today. Wait, 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 you worked out in the snow? <laughs> yeah, I've been working out in the pandemic because mainly for mental health reasons. Yeah. Not so much just to be ripped or whatever. <laughs> um, and you can't go to the gym. I mean, you can, but I, you know, don't like to have a mask on. So I yeah. do it outdoors. And now that it's getting colder, you have to be creative. That's hardcore. It was pretty hardcore, I have to admit, <laughs> but I'm really happy I did it. That's awesome. I've also been working out in the pandemic um, and not like watching what I eat or anything. So I'm just getting like rollier, but stronger. I'm like, I'm get I can do push-ups now. It's like, I feel really good about it. I'm the same way, not watching what I eat. What about you, Adam? I'm exactly the same as flabby and useless as before. <laughs> Just more ounces of wine. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even think, I think even in that, my capacity is probably diminished. I Because I, I drink the same amount, but it's I'm not as impervious. Well, that's age. We don't bring that here in this conversation. <laughs> we don't bring mentions of We're, age here. So Yash, you just turned 22. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> it was a great birthday. So you sad we couldn't catch it with the pandemic and all. You don't look a day over 18. Oh, please. That is very bad. I don't want to relive my 20s, but thank you. Skincare. But we, but we are going to relive a lot of your life in this conversation, Yashika, because we are going to talk about your amazing book, your memoir. It was such a uh, honor to read this book because I remember you struggling through it and talking to you in, in bars and parties and just being like, how am I ever going to fucking finish this? And I was like, you're going to do it, Yash. And you did it. And it's awesome. I was not as encouraging. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm. I, it's an honor for you guys to read it, to be completely honest, because you saw me writing it. I, I remember when we had that book writing class at Columbia I would just like, I remember telling Adam all the time, why are people taking this class? Do they really want to write a book along with the thesis and all the coursework that we already have? Why are they being such sacrificial lambs? I am never going to write a book. Famous last words because seven months later, I had uh, two book deals. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, and I had the you know the, and the fortune bad, of choosing and the, right. And the bad, the worst thing about having a book deal, it means that you actually need to write your book. Exactly. I mean, when it falls in your lap, what else are you going to do? You have to write it. Now you have a deadline. You have an editor who's going to help you. You have a publisher, so you have no other choice. I, I would recommend that. That's the best way to get your book done. Have What's a publisher. The, what was your pitch? So in, in 2016, early 2016 in January, I was um, unemployed uh, doing freelance. The reason I was unemployed was because nobody wanted to hire uh, immigrants with foreign visas. And journalism is already in a bad state. It still is, but back then even more so. Um, and I was just wondering what was I going to write about? And, and I was still thinking about these ideas, thinking about the, the education that I personally received from Colombia, which is, you know, this ability to think about social political structures and how, you know, privilege works and how, and I know you hate that word, Adam, we can like come to it later, but like these ideas, I didn't know them that well in India and, and uh, at Columbia, I started thinking about my own identity, which was of a Dalit person, uh, Dalit being the untouchable caste um, in, in the caste system in India, the, which is divided into hundreds and hundreds of castes. And there are certain castes 
that are untouchable that fall outside the system and even within those this is one of the lowest that i was born in it's a family of manual scavengers the profession uh, the caste based profession for our family till two generations ago was to clean uh, dry bathrooms with hand without any ppe protect protective gear it's just like a really dehumanizing demeaning job that is uh that is basically tied to us for generations via our caste so you know um having been removed from that for two generations i had grown up hiding my identity as far as my caste was concerned which was way more difficult to navigate in india than here you mentioned that you're 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 you were kind of like two generations removed from that type of identity so can you talk a little bit about i guess your grandfather and and actually what i learned from your book is that your name that i learned of your that yashka dutt i think is how you pronounce it um is not actually your 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 grandfather's name so can you talk about your your two names and this and this transition that happened in this generation of your family sure um So I I'm not sure how aware our listeners are with the concept of caste though I'm guessing with the, the new book caste Isabel Wilkerson's they might have some idea of what that whole concept is about but most Americans at least understand caste as this ancient system that existed in India but doesn't anymore you know uh, and people whoever suffered from it whoever were disadvantaged have now completely gotten over it because in part that is also the narrative that um a lot of americans get from other indians who are over 90% upper caste themselves so um just to pull a little back like i mentioned earlier that the caste system has several castes um i'm from among the most untouchable castes that exist when i was living in india which was still 2014 uh when i moved to new york i was a journalist and even before that when i was an undergrad and in school my my mom raised me uh in a way that i needed to hide that aspect because if i didn't then uh i would be subject to open discrimination i would be subject to uh you know slurs and you know at the hands of teachers at the hands of my classmates friends etc so there was just this idea that we needed to pass like for people who are aware with this concept which is really prominent especially in the african american community where you know people who can would pass as white because it would save them uh direct discrimination so that's what we kind of did as well growing up not knowing what to call it but doing exactly that can you give us examples right so you know this is fully related to what Vanessa just asked me about how i came to have two different last names or you know a little bit about my grandfather and and the way you're asking me adam about the nuances of what it means to quote unquote pass as an upper caste person because you know the key this dis- uh, distinction over here is that whereas between black folks trying to pass off as a as any other race there is this giveaway of skin color but within the you know sort of indian hegemonist sort of south asian uh racial features how do you pass as an upper caste person so you know that's super easy a lot of because a lot of um 
Dalits, especially 25% of the India's population that is Dalit, till very recently was not allowed any kind of education. And when I say recently, I mean until, uh, you know, it became a law to decriminalize untouchability in the Indian constitution in the 50s. Until then, there would be severe backlash if a Dalit person tried to get an education. So one of the simplest things uh, that a Dalit person can pass as upper caste is by being educated and not just by being educated, by being educated in a way that translates to a Western, uh, you know, a Western understanding, like speaking English well or um, having an understanding of global culture or American culture, for example, or knowing about a certain band. But but English the ability to speak English is, is um, and, and this is something that I've heard from many, many communities across the world who have felt the same need that this language can be, um, can, can transport you or pull you out of your uh, caste origins, though not entirely, but at least you can use that as a crutch to pass yourself as, as an upper caste person. So my whole um, idea of, as a young kid was also to make sure that I excelled at English, that I spoke it better than anybody else, that I learned how to write it better than anybody else. Because my whole idea was to construct an identity that wasn't mine. So, you know, um, that those are definitely characteristics. And of course, access to fashion, access to Western style, access to, like I mentioned, culture, music. These are all codes that are very distinctive to um, Indian societies where, you know, of course, you can see that and make an assumption about what a person's past is. But beyond that is the direct question. The, the main thing that I needed to do to pass was to learn how to lie when somebody would ask me what my caste was. Because you would, you would not assume that, you know, somebody who just met you five minutes ago would, would actually ask, so what caste are you from? But it is extremely common, not just back in India, but within the Indian Americans in the United States. To, uh, most people might not admit it. And a lot of people will say, well, we don't even know caste. That is absolutely You're not true. Caste because blind. Yeah, you cast blind like you're race blind. Uh, but I think for me, the most difficult aspect of passing was that, you know, uh, to get over that fumbling, to be able to convincingly say, I am a Brahmin caste or I am, you know, some other upper caste. And then they would go deeper. Okay, so if you're from that caste, then what subcaste? And give me some details of the rituals you do or who is your. Uh, house god etc which you know the stuff that i have no idea about and if somebody really wanted to probe that lie really didn't have a lot of legs to stand on so you know among you know apart, apart from appearances apart from these soft skills that you can acquire i think the biggest passing that people do is by changing their last name and lying about what their what their cast is because and again um for listeners who are unfamiliar the best way and the most direct way to find out someone's caste is an Indian person's last name. And people who are Indian can read a last name and understand which caste that name belongs to. Which is why what Vanessa mentioned earlier that I grew up with two last names. One was my real last name, which was a caste indicator. And one was an assumed name, which is Dutt, which a lot of Dalits in India end up doing is to adopt this neutral name that can't be sort of traced directly to any particular caste. So that makes the process of 
identity construction that is not yours that's much simpler or easier at least what are some of the consequences of being quote unquote exposed as dalit back home oh uh any number of consequences right it's it's treated like a crime because i mean think of it there is this entitlement that upper caste folks who are uh, who are indians who are born into this idea that we are so privileged and we are so much better than this you untouchable person who is born in this particular caste that how dare you even assume our identity it leads to total ostracization um, you know if uh, i have a group of friends and many of them uh, are not cool with caste or uh, don't participate in the anti-caste discourse uh people would stop speaking to me once they find out i'm from an untouchable caste or um i might not get a house uh, on rent once somebody finds out that i'm actually not from a brahmin upper caste but i'm from this particular caste so i go uh, like similarly to what happens to black folk here right like it's harder to find places to rent in certain neighborhoods that would happen to me um in my journalism job i would be typecast as a certain kind of writer my opportunities would be limited i would definitely not get any promotions and any kind of work that i did would be viewed from what uh my caste was from the lens of you know this is a dalit person uh they are not supposed to have any qualities that allow them to do any other job except manual scavenging so anything that i would do would be observed from that lens and you know finding a romantic partner in india especially if i were to date somebody who was indian that would be a huge challenge because no uh, not marrying somebody from a lower caste versus you know an, an upper caste person marrying somebody from a lower caste is this huge um contentious issue back in india yeah a lot of times when a girl from an upper caste uh, and when i say upper or lower i just always want to preface that that i'm using air quotes because these are artificial categories that really shouldn't exist so you know to just to go back to what i was saying when a lower when an upper upper caste girl marries a lower caste man many times her parents will um threaten to uh, kill them or harm them or conduct violence against them many cases they end up killing both the couple uh, both the girl their own daughter and her uh, low caste husband because she has defiled their honor and you know those killings are called honor killings so basically they are intercaste marriages and the retaliation that uh, that folks have that upper caste folks have uh, to this idea that you're intermingling and that you're diluting this idea of caste that we have preserved for so long. And so then in your own family then Yashika so it sounds like it, it was your grandfather who adopted the other name right who kind of first took the steps towards distancing your family identity from the Dalit identity and then and I believe it's education that was that was kind of the way that your that people in your family have attempted to kind of distance themselves from this association. Absolutely. So, um my grandfather was also the first person in the family to be able to get a government job to break that kind of cycle of manual scavenging because it's really without you know if you force a uh, 25% of a 1 billion people to not have an education, they will have no other skill except the skill that their caste is supposed to have. So, you know, after right after independence in India, which was in 1947, 
he was able to get an education get a good government job and because the government jobs that came at that time was carried so much prestige it didn't completely neutralize his caste but he was at least able to establish himself and say i'm going to as, uh, assume this kind of last name which is not the caste indicator and you know my kids are going to be raised in a certain way which nobody in my family is now going to do this um, caste based profession that we are ordained to do and also it possibly involved cutting some ties with the community as well for maybe a brief period of time though i do know that he returned to that aspect later on uh, politically especially he he was quite engaged still is he he is around so you know he is extremely engaged with that aspect of uh, the community and you know being one of the figures who from especially from my community there are not many it's very difficult to find uh, people who are able to pull themselves and break those ties so yeah definitely education and that's why especially in asian cultures especially among asian indians uh, indian americans education is such a huge emphasis already because we are quote unquote this third world uh, developing nation so the, one of the ways everybody looks at to pull ourselves out of whatever economic inequality or uh whatever level of disadvantage we are at is through education but for if you're a lower caste person that carries so much more charge than um for anybody else because it also gives you an opportunity to kind of um hide if not completely erase your caste identity i had never heard the term reservation before um and i was wondering if you can describe what it, what that is for an american audience or, or a non-indian audience that may not be familiar and how um not only how it kind of positively impacted your family in life but also once we get there just why the heck it's so controversial sure um absolutely so you know reservation j- just to take you a little back before independence you know as the british were leaving india they had established tons of schools tons of convent schools um and they did allow dalit students to be a part of those schools but the people who were running those schools the day to day administration a lot of them were indians so what they were doing was they were discriminating against the children uh who happened to be dalit they still actually that uh, discrimination in in a classroom continues even today but you know right in in the early 40s you know kids uh like you know my great grandfather which was not in the early 40s but way before would be forced to sit outside the classroom and the teacher would you know speak loudly sometimes he would hear something sometimes he would miss he was not allowed to hold a pen or paper or slate uh you know which is what a lot of children uh, his classmates use at the time and he had to learn how to write by scrawling a stick in the mud he had to learn that's how he learned the alphabet and of course it was remarkable that he was able to finish high school education um in in a society that that denied that luxury so to speak to dalits so when we won our freedom from the british and the new constitution came about which incidentally was written by a dalit person which is another incredible story for those of you who are interested go look up who dr b r ambedkar is he was a dalit person who also wrote india's constitution and is one of the biggest champions of um anti caste uh, ideology 
who has lived like um uh, isabel wilkerson in her book describes him as the mlk of dalit rights and and that would be quite accurate so he wrote the constitution and he really talked about getting um dalit folks and adivasi folks adivasi being the tribal indigenous folks in india the same seat of at the table that the upper caste hindus were getting or any other religion was getting muslims or christians um so he wanted he clearly understood that the way for dalits to extract ourselves out of this caste ordained professions whether it was like my family manual scavenging or some other caste profession was to deal with dead animals or um, you know make leather out of it which is again another dehumanizing profession or several other lower caste professions that you know nobody else in the society wanted to do and they found particular set of people to do it over a thousand years so he said that not only will uh the dalits and the adivasis and the tribals of india get an equal education we will make sure that they are able to make up for these thousands of years of disparity where they've been systemically denied education so basically what the reservation is it's an affirmative action program to make up for the lack of access to education for over thousands of years also the discrimination that dalit students and adivasi students inevitably face in educational institutions that are run by upper caste hindu men mostly upper caste hindu men so you know for example a student can enter an academic institution and face discrimination by their peers or by their teachers etc etc so or you know they could look at a dalit person's cut off uh, marks in a certain examination and just say well the the last known surname or uh, their last name is not uh you know it, we don't want these kind of people in our institution so they just don't give them an admission so what the reservation policy did was created a certain number of seats that were allotted only for dalits and adivasis so those seats could only be filled by those those students and they had no other choice but to admit a certain number of dalit people even if they weren't coming through other channels but they had to admit those uh students in these educational institutions and that's how my grandfather was uh, able to get an education that's how my dad was able to get an education um uh, so you know and and so many dalits um in india who are educated and lower castes so you know dalits are the untouchable castes but even within the caste system you know dalits are outside the system but within the caste system they're also lower castes who are slightly above dalits but still you know discriminated so you know so many lower caste folks now have professions that are not not caste ordained have access to education it's all because of this uh reservation policy and it's remarkably forward thinking because it was instituted in the 40s but now since you know coming back to you asked me why it is so controversial well of course it's controversial because upper caste people feel that dalits and adivasi folks don't deserve to be in in these spaces that's the whole argument the idea is dalit people are talentless quote and quote meritless and when they enter these institutes they bring down the average uh brain power of that uh, of that structure so therefore 
this reservation policy shouldn't be applied anymore. Or the other concept is, uh, the other logic is, which is completely false also, that it's been 70 years, that's enough to undo, you know, uh, thousands of years of, uh, you know, access, denying access to education, thousands of access, uh, years of denying access to owning property or land or like systemic subjugation. They, a lot of people argue that 70 years is more than enough. How much more do you, do you need? That's very similar to the American rights argument against affirmative action. Absolutely. And this, it plays out in such similar ways where, you know, if a Dalit person is uh, availing or is at a certain place in the education institution or like myself has, you know, been able to create a, a career which is in an academic field or a literary field, uh, I'm, you know, you get to hear that, of course, they got these advantages because they, they are a minority community or they're marginalized. So that backlash is you know, it's funny how textbook human behavior is, whether you're from a so-called first world or so-called third world. People who are in power, people who want to hold on to these structures behave in just exactly the similar ways, whether whether they're upper caste Indians or whether they're white folks. They, be, they behave in exactly similar ways when their power is challenged. You point out in your book a little historiographical irony that strikes me as absolutely bizarre and which speaks to some of the absurdities in the field of post-colonial studies in the West, in the grand narrative, in the way that the West studies the colonial period, Britain is one of the prime villains, right? And justifiably so, because the brutality, the colonial brutality and imperialist brutality, cruelty and uh, exploitation that occurred through the Raj and before that during the East India Trade Company is absolutely inexcusably horrific. It's one of the acmes of imperialist terror, right? However, some scholars, either due to cynical expediency or simply confusion, are using Britain's imperialist past to either justify or erase the role of caste in Indian history. The most fascinating version of that is when you get people from an upper caste using post-colonial scholarship to blame the British for inventing the caste system, as if the entire history of caste discrimination was fabricated by the imperialist rulers in order to divide and conquer the local population. Now, there is a scintilla of truth there, as I'm sure you'll get into when you'll press the nuance, but to claim, as some scholars do, that the entire caste system is a British fiction is a gross overstatement. And in doing so, those scholars are, in fact, abdicating responsibility and even absolving themselves Absolutely. of their own involvement in Absolutely. ongoing caste discrimination. As a result, you get some serious scholars pretending as if the caste system has absolutely nothing to do with the millennia-long history of Hinduism and is not at all indigenous to the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, that is so laughable to me. I mean, you know, it's, it's really about... I'm going to go into a couple of things here. The reason that this narrative has been allowed to exist itself speaks for the West's interest in its former colonies or places that are quote-unquote third world or places that are non-developed or developing or underdeveloped. This idea that they want to look at it from this framework that, um, that really doesn't leave space for nuance. They want 
an easily digestible hero's narrative, which should be presented to them in a way that's simple and, uh, you know, brings out the British as the evil villains and the Indians as, as these hapless, uh, you know, uh, victims. victims. Well, of course they were. Like you mentioned, there, not only is there no excusing the brutalities of the British Raj, they have to be held accountable. But that does not mean there was just one villain. I think in these stories, we have to leave space for several villains. How did the British even rule a state like a, a state like India, a colony like India with a handful of people? Well, it was been done through upper caste folks. They let these upper caste folks who were landowners who were committing their own share of extreme brutalities on the landless workers who also happened to be Dalit or lower caste. Or, um, you know, they were just letting them be turning their eyes away from trying to reform any of this and, and made them the de facto bosses of the country, which is why one of the things that I've talked a lot in my book is about this idea that why do we not have Dalits in any position of power, um, 70 years post in, in, in India's um, landscape is because the system that where upper castes are at the top was created by the British. They created this modern system where the babus, the babu is, babu is a colloquial term that we use in South Asia. It's a Desi term. Uh, the clerks that they employed to run the whole thing their second-hand, first-hand men, the lackeys, were all upper caste. So they built this system from the scratch to rule India, and they left the upper caste folks at the helm of it, who very conveniently took over once they left. But does that mean those caste divides did not exist? That is absolutely false. They did not come and create the caste divides. A lot of academic... Hindu upper caste ap academic scholars have come and said, well, the British created the caste system. They solidified it by counting caste. It's like saying there are 100,000 people, but the British gave the, give this, uh, you know, said that there were 100,000 people by counting them. So they, they brought this issue into perspective. Therefore, they are responsible. Right, they created a census that included caste and thereby counted the caste into existence. What they also did was they turned their, they turned their gaze away when it came to these caste structures and utilized them. So they are also extremely evil in the way that they saw these divides that already existed and they exploited them to their own end to be better rulers. Because let's not forget, in the 1800s, they tried to quote-unquote reform India by banning sati, by, you know, creating all these, bringing all these reforms. Sati, for those of, those of our listeners who don't know, is this practice where, you know, the the widow of a warring tribesman or a warring, uh, you know, somebody, uh, a man who died in war would burn herself alive at the funeral pyre of her now dead husband. That is the practice of sati and British famously brought a law to abolish it, which is def definitely among the better things that they've done. Um, but because these practices, these reforms created such a huge backlash, that the British said, you know what, we're not going to touch it. We're not going to 
try and intervene and make their lives any better. In fact, what we're going to do is double down and create these laws that actually help upper caste people to remain dominant as they have been. Whether it's, there are several examples and I don't want to go into too many details, but there was this fight that happened in Maharashtra uh, led by Dr. Ambedkar, who I mentioned earlier, when he drove, uh, when, when he uh, inspired and asked people to go and drink water from this public water body because water, when a Dalit person drank it, would become untouchable and another upper caste person couldn't even touch that water. So the untouchability survived through water very much from accounts that I've heard about the African-American experience in the 60s when the fountains were different. So very similarly, when he led these hundreds of thousands of people to drink and claim this body of water, which was technically public, uh, there was a huge backlash. People, you know, the upper caste people killed Dalits who had done that when they returned to the villages. There was violence. And the British judiciary sided with the upper caste folks. So this is a slightly complex and nuanced understanding of, you know, there is not one easy villain. There are lots of them, but depends on, you know, the Western uh, uh, hemisphere's willingness to probe these issues and, and, you know, not just look at what's easy to understand, what's the easy narrative. And of course, just before, you know, we get away from the subject, South Asian academics have propagated this whole narrative from South Asian bureaucracy, South Asian gov- Indian governments, Indian bureaucracy, Indian academics who happen to be upper caste created this narrative and got it sanctioned that the British created a caste system. And that's just part of colonial history that colonial powers, especially the British, would exploit existing mm. divisions and existing cultural prejudices you know and in, in, in order to implement a bureaucracy that can be easily influenced or even directly controlled in the case of the raj so this has definitely been the the mo of british colonialism but that doesn't mean that the prejudices did not predate prefigure right. the the british exploitation of them and 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 the interesting thing about what you were you're pointing out is, is actually is twofold from the Western perspective, it shows the narcissism of a lot of the post-colonial storytelling that it's not really over. I don't want to generalize, but it's not always about actually trying to rectify the sins of the past, but rather to tell a story that is just as self-involved as the colon- the original colonial story, but in reverse, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. once we were the, the, the heroes bringing enlightenment to the, to the nations, now we are the villains that have, that constantly need to amend for our sins. And that's, you know, that's a whole, my whole conversation with the, with uh, uh, um, Robin D'Angelo's book that I think is, is the, the total white savior complex bullshit. Absolutely. They want to be the main characters of every story. Right. Whether they're the heroes or the villains. And, yeah. and so it suffers from that narcissism. But the second half of the equation is how it is, as you pointed out, being exploited to actually preserve the very prejudices that, that, that were cemented by the um, colonial project and, and predated it. So it's lack of nuance is not just embarrassing history it also has real world consequences in 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 trying to exonerate historical crimes speaking of um easy easy heroes narratives and and villains and and uh how the west shapes uh these characters when they so 
one of the things that I learned reading your book, and I feel very embarrassed to admit that I learned this, um, was how uh, Gandhi was not a great guy. <laughs> he was just not as great a guy as I had been led to believe. And I was, I was, I really enjoyed learning more about Dr. Ambedkar, which you who you talked about earlier in this conversation. And I don't want to dwell on this too long because there's like a lot I want to talk to you about that isn't this. But in a nutshell, can you can you talk a little bit about um, Dr. Ambedkar versus Gandhi and why on earth we we all know who Gandhi is and don't know who this other person is? Yeah, that's uh, casteism in one word. That's that's literally the whole reason why you don't know about, or you don't know uh, who Dr. Ambedkar is, this person who created this constitution, who had these radical policies in the 40s, uh, who, who, whose policies changed the fate. And as somebody who doesn't believe that much in fate, but definitely changed the fate and destiny of uh, you know, 25% of a country's population, the reason you don't know about this person is specifically because of how radical he was and how he refused to be a pawn to Hindu nationalist politics and how he asserted absolute equality for uh, Dalits and Adivasi folks. So, you know, Gandhi is a complicated figure. And especially what's happening in India right now, which is, you know, this proto-fascist government uh, that we have in the center where they are trying to also attack Gandhi from the other end. While, you know, the, the person who murdered uh, MK Gandhi was, is, uh, you know, looked up to by the current ruling government party. So they have their own agenda in trying to undermine what his contribution was. I had no idea that that's going on. So I, I dig into that in a second. So first give us your perspective on, on Gandhi and, right. and, and then take us to today and what's going on in India. I mean, just I want to contextualize that because it's not so easy. However, having said that, Gandhi was not interested at least in the 30s and in the 20s, he was not interested in preserving the rights of uh, any Dalit folks, any untouchable folks. He is now currently known as the hero of untouchables, not just to in, uh, people outside India, but even to many Indians themselves. How he worked for the upliftment of these God's people. His name for Dalits was God's people. Like, you know, creating this idea that we are some magical folk who have these otherworldly abilities that allow us to do us de these degrading and dehumanizing things. And we've been chosen by the divine to do these horrible uh, to engage in these horrible professions and to endure a life of discrimination. So that's how Gandhi reframed the entire issue. But uh, what Ambedkar said was that I don't believe in any of this. I want absolute equality. You treat me as an absolutely equal human being. You give me the same rights that you have. And I'm nobody's, I'm, I'm no divine savior. I am just like you. And I don't want to be involved in this project of labeling uh, Dalits and Adivasis as Harijans. Harijan is Hari, Hari being God and Jan being person. So God's person that, that I, he had no 
you know, he did not want to participate in that. And he actively, Ambedkar actively spoke about the rights and the plight of Dalits. At that time, we didn't have Twitter or, you know, the <laughs> internet. So he, when he went to, to London for one of the roundtable conferences, which were these big conferences where, you know, the, the British Parliament took a stock of what's happening in the colonies, he talked openly about Dalits. And then the British also found something to latch on to. He was so articulate that the British press loved him. And that's when these Indian leaders, whether they were, that was Gandhi, whether that was Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, came into the consciousness that, oh, the Dalit problem exists. And that's when they decided that, okay, we have to, we cannot move on towards this project of getting independence from the British unless we consider this huge inequality that is also existing within our midst. So my personal take on Gandhi is that I respect the nationalist work that he put into um, to, to get, the, you know, to fight for freedom against the British. But also I don't look at him as this myth. You have to look at that any leader as the man and with their own failings. And one of his major failings was that he was not a friend of Dalits. He was a friend of his own tribesmen, which is the upper caste Hindu male. That's who he, that's whose rights he wanted to protect. There is this particular passage that Vanessa, you probably referred to in the book where Ambedkar and Gandhi went to head to head about securing more political rights for Dalits. And Gandhi said, I'm going to fast until death if you uh, do not take back down from this so-called proposition. And when I die, the, you know, the backlash that's going to happen in the 30s against Dalit folks is going to be on your feet, Dr. Ambedkar. And then, of course, they, they reach this kind of arrangement. But this, these are like, I think what we need to understand is that these figures existed and survived not very long ago. And these like political machinations and, and you know, these, uh, these balancing acts, they've been a part of our history forever. So, you know, my opinion on Gandhi is respect him for what he did against the British, but can't really care for him much when he had such a striking anti-Dalit attitude. Yeah. And also anti-black attitude. Mm. Look at his history in South Africa. I mean, the, a statue of him was torn down. Huh. I would say right, rightfully so in South Africa, in Ghana, if I'm not mistaken. Because, you know, the African academics, more than the American academics or the, or the UK-based academics are now aware of what Gandhi's actual legacy is when he fought for the rights of uh, people in South Africa, he was only fighting for the rights of upper caste brown folk. And he said, well, we also have people who are like black folk over here who are Dalits. I don't want, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's researched and talked about quite, quite prominently, actually, when he said that I really don't care for the rights of other folks. I just, you know, I am privileged. How can you treat me like that? Me who is at the, at the top of this creamy layer in this society, how dare you treat me as a person who is not equal to you? And when he got, the, the incident when he was thrown out from the train by, for being brown, and that's when he got so incensed that he, for the first time, experienced discrimination and came back and fought for freedom from the British. And that, that's, 
sorry, I just wanted to say that's the experience of a lot of nationalist leaders in the 40s. They all went to study abroad, realized that brown people, they might be upper caste in their own country where they are, the, you know, the uppermost caste who are revered and respected and feel at the top of the caste pyramid. In the Western world, they're just ordinary brown folk who are in the racial hierarchy, not that high. That's what I was going to say. You see that pattern happening across a lot of ex-colonial countries, again, where, where they have already their own history of, of prejudices and concepts of supremacy, where the dissonance of having those deeply rooted supremacist propensities crushed by an external foe of somebody who in the 17th century they would have considered to be underdeveloped barbarians suddenly destroying them and 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 subduing them created this 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 combined dissonance combined with resentment that meant not just that they wanted to fight in order to you know, shatter the shackles of European imperialism, but also to reassert their own supremacism in their own country. And you see that, for instance, in, in, in Chinese history, a great deal of, a great motivator in the past 40 years of, of Chinese international politics and internal was to completely reassert the Han dominance, having a, a clear ethnic majoritarian statism. You see that in the with the Uyghur concentration camps and internationally, they, they want to reclaim what they see as their, their rightful role as ruler of the Pacific, if not the world. Basically, their problem with imperialism was not imperialism, is that they were on the receiving end. Yeah, and I... You know, to rephrase what you said, I think what you said is really remarkable. The problem was not just imperialism. The problem was that they weren't allowed to conduct their own version of imperialism. That they were being stopped from doing that. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just that they stood for this uh, injustice. Well, of course, they were at the receiving end of it. But also, they were being stopped from, uh, from you know, practicing their own forms of it. Internally. In, in, internally, at least. Like, in India it really didn't matter because uh, the caste system was thriving uh, and flourishing, you know, so the British did allow them. But also, like, they assumed, a lot of upper caste folks assume uh, when they come to the United States, for example, Indians, they are not ready for this kind of secondhand uh, citizen treatment. And it comes as a shock to many, especially if they're upper caste folk, but because they're used to being above somebody else back home. So their supremacy and their superiority and dominance in the social structure is inherently challenged, which is not to by any means justify what happens here in terms of the racial hierarchy, but also to like maybe have opened the door for nuance, like I mentioned earlier, to look at all these different um, you know, fragments that exist within our social order, which is not just this neat narrative that has been presented to us or the way we understand it on social media, for example. It's not just that. There is so much more to not, things. It, it, Europe did not invent prejudice. They, they just practiced it remarkably well for, for 200 Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Absolutely. We did a good job on our own as far as India is concerned. Yeah, that's, that's the beautiful thing. And, and you know, with, with Israel, you, you saw that how quickly a nation that has emerged from persecution around the world managed to develop its own hierarchical system, not only between Arabs and Jews and Palestinians and Israelis, but 
between different types of Jews, between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. Human societies just can't help themselves. It happens so fast. People are so quick at making up these fake categories. It's almost beautiful <laughs> in just how human it is. The execution is near perfect. Well, Vanessa is curing that I'm, I'm, I'm having too much fun. So let's just conclude that we need more discrimination in, in the sense of discernment, which you have in droves in your book. But I think that if we, if we have to follow a rule, a heuristic, then stop looking for heroes in history. Just, just, just stop. Stop deifying people. The Gandhi example is, is perfect for that. As for hate, <laughs> if you must hate someone, then just be an equal opportunity hater. <laughs> and, and that's it. Assume that everyone is garbage. Still, kudos to you, Yash, for preserving the nuance. Oh, thank you. That is, yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say, but, you know, this uh, erasing of nuance in history might have to do with... Uh, the enduring appeal of simplistic David versus Goliath stories. But, you know, that's for another day. Before we do move on, you did mention, I don't, I, you had mentioned the kind of current landscape in India and the ways that history is being, you know, retold and retooled um, with the current political dynamics. Would you mind talking a little bit about what's going on in terms of Indian politics right now? Where does one even start? Right. There is so much going on in Indian politics, but it started, <laughs> at least the recent modern version of it. You know, I, I'm happy to say that we're among the first countries to have the proto-fascist government in the world <laughs> uh, <laughs> back in 2014. We, we, when we were there we before. Elected, we were there, uh, true, sorry, do, we do not mean to usurp <laughs> your claim to that fame. Your your throne, uh, but <laughs> yeah, um, you know Erdogan and Modi and and yours, your f- truly, uh, but long may you reign. Long, let's not go there. Coming back to this, two thousand fourteen, uh, India elected this hyper nationalist right wing government to the center with a thunderous majority uh, in the. Governments before, they were always like, we don't have the two-party system. We have a multi-party system, unlike the United States. So, you know, several parties allowed to contest. But no singular party had won enough votes that the BJP did in 2014. And of course, the, the agenda that they were couching that was development, vikas is with the catch-all phrase, because means development, that, you know, India needs to become a superpower by 2020, famous last words. And, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, we see ourselves growing so much. In the 90s, we've had so much development. You know, this shining economy, we're going to do well. We're going to be on this path to progress. But what really happened was in the garb of that progress was the breaking down of the socialist tenets that India had survived on so far, uh, creating more opportunities for privatized players, whether it's in the telecom sector, whether it's in mining, whether it's in pharmaceuticals even, to uh, you know create these like highly capitalist um, structures and frameworks which you know started trickling down in the 90s when we opened our market to the rest of the world and arguably economists will say that that's a great idea but what's happening right now is you know one of the reasons are healthcare. India's healthcare somewhat works is because it's this marvelous creation of public and private government for the very poor, which is not the best, but 
A, you won't die. And you won't be saddled with, uh, you know, thousands of dollars of cancer treatment, and, and which you're, you know, survive cancer but die from debt, like in the United States. Uh, you know, the, we, our socialist structures in India have worked for many aspects. What this current administration, among other things, tried to do was to break down those structures and sort of create these free market policies, which only, you know, uh, few individuals have access to in India. Apart from that, what the government is trying to do is to create this idea of a Hindu nation. India has always been secular. India has one of the things that we put out to the world, one of the reasons caste was able to go ignored for so long is because India championed this agenda that we are going to speak for any country that needs to speak in terms of standing on the right side of equalities, whether it was the apartheid policies in South Africa, India was one of the first countries to talk about that, or, you know, we found our own uh, neutral block, not siding with US or USSR back back in history. So India had this like shiny example of being the secular country, unity and diversity. We work because we are so many, but somehow this the system is not so broken. What the government right now is trying to do is to erase that and say that we are primarily a Hindu nation. When the British left and India was divided in Hindu and Pakistan, Pakistan chose to be an Islamic country. So then but we were like, you know, India is secular, will always be there is respect for every religion. While the constitution has not been overturned yet, there are efforts like um, these horrifying laws that have that just recently passed. One of the examples of how the, there is a project to just make it into a Hindu nation. In the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, there was a law that is passed very recently which is uh, which will uh, for you know lovers of history that will take us back to the Nuremberg laws in Germany where they decided that it's illegal it's literally illegal for a Jewish person to marry an Aryan person or to be in a relationship so what the Uttar Pradesh law which is governed by a Hindu nationalist uh, head of state as well who is actually a quote unquote a priest or a monk uh, and that's his official title as well. So a monk is a head of a state, a Hindu priest. And one of his laws in that state is that a Hindu person cannot marry a Muslim person. Or the nuances of the law are worded or differently. But the effect is that when a Hindu girl and a Muslim man marry or vice versa, um, the police has every right to intervene and break them apart. A case that recently happened where a woman was married or about to be married to her Hindu husband, who was, she was Muslim or whether he was Muslim and she was Hindu, they were interfaith. And she was forced to miscarry in, um, in the, the, the prison, in the jail cell by the police authorities because she was carrying the child of, uh, of a Muslim man. So, you know, these kind of horrifying laws or you've heard anybody who's been looking at India in the past few years might have heard of the horrible lynchings that have happened, um, you know, against especially people who are quote unquote beef eaters. So this mythologizing of the cow, you know, cow has always been a sacred animal in Hindu culture in India. But this whole idea that, you know, if you are a legal transporter of, of beef, beef meat, which can be buffalo or can be cow, then goons who call themselves the, the purveyors of morality or Hindu culture can come and lynch you to death 
and they will not be uh, there will be no consequences for that there are several lynchings like that where somebody was on the train uh was you know talked about being a muslim or whatever and this just argument broke out and a mob killed that person and it sounds like you know a prehistoric society but it's really not what it is it's a backlash like every society that we have seen including america it's a backlash to these progressive values that india at least in terms of secularism espoused for a relatively long time you know at least on the face of it what the bjp government is trying to do and i don't want to name check them because you know their it cell is too powerful and i don't want to be doxed which which is actually a, a valid threat for um journalists and academics who are living abroad and living in india and anti government at this point so what's happening is this nationalist project of creating H- india into a hindu nation where whether it is you know the the killer of gandhi nathuram godse who is um the ideological wing of the central ruling party which is the rss the rss is this outfit that uh is directly inspired by nazi germany their booklet that they print out is directly deeply inspired by uh, the values of hitler and they have now begun to eulogize the killer of gandhi saying that he was a hero and this kind of idea is now coming into uh social consciousness is now people are allowed to say that there was nothing wrong with god say killing gandhi etc so you know there there is a lot that is happening in india but a lot of it has to do with either silencing academics jailing activists uh protesting students are met with the harshest kind of violence there is a protest going on in india right now conducted by the farmers who are what they're doing is they are protesting against several things but one of them is contract farming which is to not give a contract for a produce to uh, a multinational company like lays or any other company that can buy that produce at very low uh, you know below market rate and profit off of it the government is bringing these laws that would allow in the garb of progress saying that this is this is allowing the agricultural industry in india to open up this is just one of the examples of how you know private capital is being involved in what was what has been so far a socialist structure so this is of course my factual interpretation of things how things are people who are listening to this podcast are indian love modi will probably have an issue with this but i would encourage them to just go read the facts because uh india is not what it used to be even when i left it it's a completely transformed country can we dwell just another second on the goring acceptance or justification of the murder of gandhi wasn't gandhi the symbol of nationalism of of indian nationalism and patriotism and all those things that populist right wingers like to extol absolutely absolutely so how does that how did that symbol decay so much to be to become partisan uh that's an interesting question that i think we need it's not concern for his view on dalits and and blacks in south absolutely africa not. so so <laughs> right not. so what is it um i think we need to and, and this might be something i might not be able to fully explain here but what's happening is you know because it might be too in the weeds for people who are not familiar but gandhi contested his election he he never contested elections but he was closely associated with the congress party of india the congress party of india was 
in power in India for decades, uncontested by any other party. They were the they were the nationalists. So when the British were there, Congress Party was directly fighting the British. And then as India got independence, they you know went on to form the government for several several years for decades. But they were also not that great themselves. They were highly corrupt. India was uh, moving at a place that pace that was not expected of the economy or, or not forecasted. There were a lot of challenges. There were a lot of scams that came out and there was just no development. There was no Vikas. So, you know, people were really sick of this uh, complacent attitude by this Congress party, which was, which also was seen as, you know, the, the narrative that is right now, currently widespread in India is that Congress feels Congress, the Congress party feels like it's entitled to power in this country. So this, this rise of this right wing party is also uh, this kind of backlash to elitism in, in certain sense. So Gandhi was associated with the Congress and with the decay of the Congress, so to speak in the political landscape, it became, it, it was declared an open, field day on Gandhi as well. Well, he was the nationalizing, you know, unifying, sorry, the, the nationalist unifying factor for India for so long. But, you know, with this BJP government in power, all kind of right-wing ideas gained legitimacy pretty quickly. And one of them being that it's okay to uh, decimate the legacy of Gandhi, which, I mean, for Dalits is a completely different reason to approach it. Right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, Thinking about the like the state of the Dalit rights movement today, because because the way that you're describing it, I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing kind of potential for there to be attacks on both sides, right? I'm seeing the potential for there being this right wing movement where uh, that are really uh, dedicated to preserving a Hindu nationalist identity, which would I believe. Uh, solidify caste and solidify this system and then on i assume on the other side you have quote unquote progressive type academic type elites who are saying but we're post <laughs> we're post caste so we shouldn't even talk about it because we're so be- so much better than that already and then where does that leave the the dalits right now in in india attempting to create space for themselves and equality. And, and yeah, it leaves Dalits. And that's an excellent question, Vanessa. Like that is remarkable that you were able to ask me this extremely nuanced question, having understood exactly what the issue that Dalits are facing today in India. It leaves Dalits as it uh, these things always leave Dalits, fighting for their own selves. And because we don't have that, or we didn't have that much power, I don't know how much that has changed, but we we still don't have that kind of power. So we weren't able to move much, but at least, so, you know, just to start with, of course, there is a progressive block. If you are a left-wing person in the United States, if you have any associations with the DSA, you probably know about how prolific Indian left is. The left in the US is if you are somewhat associated or, or read about theories etc you probably know about indian left it's highly valorized and for good reason because we've had states in india that were fully left leaning that were communist we, uh, one of our parties is called the communist party of india 
So, you know, the Indian left has been around and has been instrumental. Right now, they're not very effective in stopping the juggernaut that is the right-wing um, proto-fascism in the country, but they have been around and they did not like Dalits either. Hmm. So in the 40s, the, the, left, the left party had this narrative that said that Ambedkar's work is taking away from the nationalist project of India, which is to get rid of the British. Anything aside from that, which was, you know, the equality issue of Dalits and, and Adivasi folks with the tribal folks was taking away from this struggle that we needed right. to undertake. So, and the left has been very dispassionate, which really surprises you because, you know, yeah. ultimately the theory that you read, the Doesn't Marxist theories. Me. Sure. Okay. Surprises I me. was being charitable. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, a lot of people t- stick to theory so much that their whole identification of issues in India is based on class. Like, you know, like it is in pretty much everywhere else across the world. But what the Indian leftists, and this is, of course, not, you know, I- I'm generalizing a bit. Not everybody is like that. But, and, and that is also this, this aspect of the Dalits pushing the left and challenging them has also worked because a lot of now prominent left figures are beginning to understand that it's important to have a left Dalit solidarity movement going on. In India, you mean? In India, in India. But historically, uh, their analysis of India and India's issues has been on class. And Mm. that is what you will still hear from Indian progressives in the United States. But isn't it all about class? Class doesn't even matter that much. So what as Dalits who are in these spaces, what we have to do is to first convince people that caste exists and how it makes a difference. So, um, you know, exactly what you said, Indian progressives who have been so instrumental in the, in the socialist uh, sort of project in the United States did not think about raising caste. Uh, That also is, you know, it's not surprising again, like Adam said, but it it does make you wonder about why is it now in the past few years that we are hearing more and more about caste? Where has this conversation been for this long? So, you know, and and like you said, um, Indian progressives want to believe that we're in a post-caste world, but thankfully... They're not being allowed to get away with that narrative anymore because there are people who are actively beginning to understand and speak about Dalit rights in a, an extremely vocal way. Has the, I mean, obviously in the U.S., the, the past, this past year has been one of maybe o- awakening, if we want to say. I, I mean, obviously there's a long history of injustice against African-Americans in this country, and I don't want to pretend like it all happened this year, but there was a lot of attention placed on it this year with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. And and clearly that the, the, the energy that was released in these protests across the U.S. has rippled across in other countries. We've seen protests happening in other countries about Black Lives Matter specifically, Is is there some way? Has there been some sort of change in, or let me put it a different way? Has that rippled to India, and has it translated in some way, or or am I just like completely off on this question? No, absolutely, you're right. I'm 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 smiling because uh, in 2020, out of all the farcical 
hypocritical ideologies to emerge out of India in a year like 2020 by an administration that forced the migrant laborers into uh, tightly packed trains where they got COVID in an effort to push them out of the cities back into their homes so they wouldn't get COVID. It, you know, in, in, in a year like that, one of the most laughable aspects to come out is how Indians, Indians on Twitter uh, and the so-called the liberal-minded Indians have Black Lives Matter on their Instagram but don't care about Dalit lives mm. right in their own backyards. They don't care about the discrimination that is happening right around them or they will go question but really caste is really not an issue or they will go and say reservation shouldn't exist or they'll say, hasn't it been long enough already? So of course, uh, black lives matter was, um, and rightly so. I mean, this is not to take away from the influence of that remarkable protest. I mean, the activists have been putting in work for years, I I believe since 2012 uh, and BLM has been instrumental in how, the social consciousness consciousness of the United States and the rest of the world talks about black lives. So it it was very heartening on some level to see that these protests are happening in India, but for being an Indian and watching those same people then attack Dalits, then question casteism, then talk about being post-caste is, is laughable. Mm -hmm. And then it really makes you question not BLM, of course, which is, like I said, a separate thing, but their own involvement in the in this kind of you know uh, kind of clout chasing, if I may say so. The lie is, and and that's I. Well, we, Vanessa and I had a conversation about this before starting the the interview, and I actually <laughs> quite disliked this question because <laughs> besides wreaking exactly the sort of Americanocentric. Uh, tendencies that I criticized earlier of assuming you know, the the light shines out of America's ass. So when America has a BLM protest, then obviously it will. Did that inspire change in the rest of the world? Like nobody asks when the Arab Spring happened. Nobody was like, does that bring freedom to the rest of the world? No, it's it's just it's just when America dances, then the whole world is expected to 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 move along to the same beat. So I didn't like that aspect of the question, but more so, it shows that the universality of the movement to the extent that it's performed on social media is a lie. The it's not it's not really a universal movement. There's a a lot of people like to participate in BLM in, in, in because they watch American politics like they do reality TV. They enjoy the drama, they enjoy yeah. rooting for their favorite characters, but not because they actually necessarily fully accept the message. It's really easy when you're sitting across the ocean and li- looking at, at racial inequality in America and say like, wow, that's really bad. Those American cops are totally out of control. But then I don't really want to deal with the prejudice at home. But, but I, I mean, and I'm not, I don't need to defend. <laughs> I know my question was inartfully phrased, but, um, but I, do, I do think it's still a valid question to, 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 to ask. Uh, in terms of this question of like, does it translate in terms of exposing other inequities that are more local to the other context? Um, and I do think that this connects to... Also, in defense of your question, uh, to, to not to be too mean, the, the, <laughs> that was, the 60s were that. The, in the 60s, right. it, 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 was, it did start locally and then carried on the rest of the world with real consequences as the anti-apartheid movement drew a lot of inspiration from the American civil rights movement and it really did percolate. And like Tom Holland said in our interview with him, it's just a fact that the world still looks, whether justifiably or not, 
at the U.S. for moral cues. It's why people around the world cried when Trump got elected and cheered when Biden got elected. As much as I find it sometimes reasonable, for a lot of people, the sun does shine out of America's ass. But it's not just it's not just that aspect. I want to and and Vanessa, your question was not inartfully phrased. I think it was a great question. And Adam, I'd like to disagree with you because what Please it do. does is yeah, because this question exposes the hypocrisy of the upper caste Indians in India and in the United States, where they were very willing to talk about BLM but not willing to talk about Silicon Valley discrimination right within their own backyard, right? So that's something that we need to address. And I want to add over here that Dalits have been hugely inspired, not just by the civil rights movement, but also the struggles of black folks through decades. Ambedkar and W.E.B. Du Bois had this ongoing exchange where, you know, he didn't know anybody except Gandhi, but Ambedkar wrote to him when he was actually at Columbia, and uh, talked about, you know, how he was inspired by how black academics were fighting for the rights of black folk. When in India, the way he phrased it was that there was still this ongoing slavery of Dalit folk. Or, you know, in the, in the 60s, like you mentioned, Adam, the Black Panther Party directly inspired the Dalit Panther Party, which a lot of people don't know about. In, in Maharashtra, in Mumbai, there was this extremely vibrant and influential party that didn't last very, very long. I mean, many of them are still around, but, you know, it created this powerful impact in kind of mobilizing this identity and this idea of what it means to be Dalit. And even like my own work is so hugely reliant on the works of black feminists who have created these ideas, whether it's passing, whether it's this articulation of identity and how we assert ourselves. So I would like to say that it's not just I mean, I, white America and black America are different in, in my opinion. And, and as a Dalit person, it is really inspirational to look at black folk who have gone through so much and are able to resist that. And, and it frankly teaches us ways and gives us this roadmap on how do we fight? Because, you know, thanks to America having this kind of uh, progress in at least in thought and ideology to some extent that India hasn't did not have in the forties when India, uh, America is, you know, the, the reason there were terms like first world slash third world was because there were different parts of worlds, which were in different eras. And America was in an era where, um, you know, um, there were these, this, this, these discussions were common. Whereas in India, we were still figuring about how we we're going to get a next meal after the Bengal famine in the 1940s, right? So we started at, from a very different colonial history, whereas America was in a different place. So there is a lot for, especially for Dalits in India, to look at the struggles of black folk and how we can work around to organize ourselves. So I think in that context, this conversation is important. But why, how we should look at it is, again, the hypocrisy of Indians who are not Dalits in, in their willingness to co-sign on a trend. And, and it breaks my heart to call it a trend, but that's how a lot of non-Black folk uh, in the U.S. have made it. You know, those Black squares or, you know, just uh, saying follow Black businesses and then forgetting about it or, or you know, like not really examining how things, how race plays a role in their own lives, you know. So um, that, that kind of 
also just to quickly touch upon why america has the kind of influence or freedoms is because the establishment in america whether it's hollywood whether it's the news media whether it's journalism is liberal leaning in india at least that is not the case right now so for folks who want to be looking at something that's not so conservative and oppressive america f- provides this landscape so i think there are like there are many ways of approaching this question but yes of course just because america does something the world should not pay attention but being a dalit person it is um important for us to look at how black folk in america are resisting white supremacist ideals and what we can do not to just co-opt that or not appropriate of course i want to be very clear just as a framework on how we can be inspired by those ideas you've 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 cracked a dent in my armor of cynicism but <laughs> yes but I, that is the biggest <laughs> achievement that's why i came here that's what i was here to do well if people actually do draw inspiration if it changes people behavior then then wonderful Sometimes mass movements do have that ability to actually completely recast the conversation. And to the extent that it exposes hypocrisy, also I guess great. My concern is that the relationship is even cheaper than that. The cost of everybody in the world including the United States viewing BLM as the only game in town is aside from viewing the United States as a variety show, which is already not helpful. It also creates a terminology that is so reductive that it allows people to be blind to the prejudices and abuses in their own backyard. You take to heart the theology that white supremacy and colonialism are the only evil, are the source of evil, and suddenly you become cast blind. Absolutely. That is, yeah, that is accurate. And, and I have to agree with you there. But, you know, having said that, I think uh, this conversation is not just about America as a reality show. We also have to acknowledge America's uh the United States position in the rest of the world and this myth of being the first nation and the leader of leaders which has been imbibed so deeply by the rest of the world especially in the global south this idea that we look towards the west for inspiration which I mean I just said that myself right. or we look at the west for progress for technology which frankly is changing because right. east asia is leading way ahead in yeah. terms of uh, you know technology and technical innovation korea south korea and and china and taiwan are really uh, doing incredible work yeah. but you know this this cultural hegemony that america has been able to establish over the rest of the world does create this idea that whatever happens in america is important all over and that's why you know there's also sustained idea that people want to come to america immigrants want to come here we yeah. want to give up our citizenships become american and do these wonderful things as americans because well, of the enduring myth and that's to add a little coda against myself the irony of my criticism of vanessa's questions and parts of your answer is that it's coming from the person that of the three of us is usually probably the most defensive of right. american hegemony <laughs> that's true actually um yeah i want i really want to ask ask you yashika about you you kind of hinted towards this in 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 your answers um about this idea of indian americans in in the us and in particularly in in silicon valley and you wrote an article a new york times article right um that i read a couple months ago um that 
was really, really interesting uh, breaking down the, the kind of caste racism that happened. Caste racism, is that even the right term? Casteism. Casteism. The kind of casteism that happens in, in the U.S., in Silicon Valley. Um, really interesting for me to read. And I shared it with some colleagues, some of whom were Indian Americans. And I, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting, but I feel like their reaction was they were shocked. They were shocked that this was happening. Um, and, these are, and these are folks who have experience in, in tech and in Silicon Valley in the world. And, it, and apparently it generated a lot of like conversation among, amongst their circles. And these are people that I would, as, I would quote, call, call quote unquote woke. Like these are people who are aware of BLM, who are aware of inequality, trying to rectify certain inequalities in our, and inequities in our society. So I, I'm, I'm curious what has been, what is the response that you heard to that article and, and what is happening in, in Silicon Valley right now that you, that you kind of dug up in your reporting? I think before we get into that, let's, let's create this very particular distinction. American yeah. woke doesn't mean Indian woke. Indian Americans can be American woke mm-hmm. because the tide, like I mentioned in the United States, because of the work done by the leaders in the civil rights movement and the Black Panther Party. And so, you know, and even till today, the activism that has sustained over decades has created this idea that saying the N-word is wrong, that racism is wrong, that we are, you know, even though people try and push back against that idea, the general consensus is that we have to get rid of this racial inequality, which is not the hardest idea to accept. You know, a new immigrant comes to the United States, sees around them that everybody is pro-BLM. Everybody uh, talks about, you know, uh, how it, it is a well-accepted idea in the culture that racism is a wrong thing. So it's not really hard. You're not going against the grain when you espouse your support for that idea. That is the most natural thing to do. In fact, if you don't do that in a place like New York, it's you get ostracized. Exactly. You get ostracized. In the coastal areas, if you are not pro these ideas that are obviously entirely justifiable, then you run the risk of a backlash. So it's not the hardest thing to come here be, being an Indian and say, Black Lives Matter. What's hard is to acknowledge that there is casteism that exists within your own family that you have probably practiced too. That is the more radical choice that puts your position in jeopardy. What is radical is when you bring uh, your partner who happens to be a Dalit person to your family and say, this is the person I'm going to marry. What puts your position in jeopardy vis-a-vis your own family, your own friends, you mean? Absolutely. And your inner circle, what really directly affects you, uh, saying Black Lives Matter while living in New York or D.C. or SF, or, you know, which is where uh, historically a lot of Indian population is based in and now in Houston, is not the hardest thing to do. So that's why I wouldn't even classify them as woke. And, you know, in terms of the reactions that I heard from people, I heard the same thing you heard. People said, how is it possible that caste is still a thing in Silicon Valley? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Silicon Valley has been in India since the 90s where caste is still a thing. So how do you think when there are a bunch of Indians in the United States as heads of departments, as controlling the entire operations, are not going to practice casteism? They're not going to subtly try and see whether you avail reservation in college or not, 
to weed out if you were dalit they're not going to try and ask where what's your background they're not going to ask if you eat meat or not are you vegetarian and if you say i'm vegetarian then they're not going to ask you is it for religious reasons or personal reasons what are these answers leading to they are leading to you being ascribed on a certain scale of hierarchy where you will deserve the respect or uh attention based on where you lie on that caste scale which is why uh a lot of indian americans when they say well we are very shocked just because for them these questions are so par for the course they are so regular that they don't even register as anything out of the ordinary it only registers in terms of consequences for the dalits mm. who the dalit engineer who was then discriminated and for years and then was forced to uh, file a complaint against his brahmin managers who by the way found out his caste even though he refused to tell them they kept probing and ultimately found out his caste by asking if he had availed reservation in one of the leading engineering colleges in back in india or not and when they re- they realized he had they told the other indians they stopped his promotion they made sure that uh, he was not getting the kind of work that he was entitled to because of the work that he'd already put in and they discriminated against him pretty openly and they could do that because in the united states caste is not um an understood concept caste is not even a part of the law it's not a protected so class it's not it's not a protected class so when you uh, you're an indian person you moved here racism is bad uh you know discrimination against lgbt group uh, folks is L- lgbtq folks is bad discriminating against women is bad even disabled people of course it's horrible but caste who's going to find out so let's just keep on keeping on as we have been nothing's going to change speaking of uh a lack of acknowledgement of Vanessa certain Queen nuance, of the segway <laughs> can, we, can we go to another article that you that you wrote that all, that also was kind of interest very interesting and potentially contentious um about Isabel Wilkerson's book Absolutely you mentioned Isabel Wilkerson several times in our right. talk in the and, beginning and she recently published her book which i think became a bestseller cast right Absolutely uh, the Oprah recommended that i think it's being made into a Netflix series rightly so yeah it's it's one of the most popular book of 2020 And it explores the, the idea of caste not strictly in the subcontinent uh, context, but as a, a pattern in in societies, a patterns of oppression in society. And she projects it on Nazi Germany and the history of racial relations in the United States, from slavery through Jim Crow to today. So, you reviewed that book, and you have some thoughts. Right. Okay, so I want to start by saying it's a really well-written book. And in what it's trying to do, it's written for specifically an American audience, an American audience that does not still want to acknowledge that race is the uh, racism is the air we breathe uh and white supremacy is the air we breathe. So in that aspect, caste the book does a fantastic job in exposing 
the blood-curdling horrors of slavery from how she picks the single thread Wilkerson picks the single thread that goes right from slavery comes to you know post slavery era where white supremacy and how it still was you know persistent and then brings it to the 60s and then brings it to present day and then there are so many heartbreaks in that narrative and how you see that this is this enduring phenomena that not not only affects black folks but also white folks themselves who um you know have to reconcile with this identity that is created for them and that's the only way for them right, to exist right that's the james baldwin take on this but uh, absolutely yeah so in that context wilkerson has done a stand up job i will not be surprised if she wins all the prizes for this book in the coming year but what my uh take on the book is that caste the caste system in india has endured for thousands of centuries sorry thousands of years definitely a few centuries um and what she does is that she uses she frames the racial hierarchy in the united states with the context of caste and she says that racism in india is a kind of a caste system Now that idea itself is not new and wilkerson acknowledges that scholars have done that work in the 20s where they said well there is a caste system that exists in the united states wilkerson has three main caste systems the germany you know the nazi germany indian caste system and the united states she brings the other two at significant points to talk about you know you understand just how bad nazi germany was here's how much worse the us was she brings that at several points to illustrate her example and she builds a good argument about why the racial structure operates like caste but what she does is that while she gives a lot of credence to how nazi germany was brutalizing jewish people she does not bring the same level of nuance and understanding to the indian caste system and the only conclusion one can draw from that is because it's not a western idea it's because the western audience will not understand or empathize with the problems of you know hungry naked quote unquote poor people in some other far corner of the world i mean this is just conjecture of course there could have been editorial issues the the publisher could have said well we cannot focus so much on india but the end result is the book only talks mostly about nazi germany and the horrors that it inflicted and about obviously the central premise which is the racial hierarchy framed as caste but completely ignores more or less the caste system in india and Wilkerson talks about how her introduction to caste is not very old that she met a few scholars in London she has attended a few conferences in the United States she's even been to India and and done a few interviews there but even like simple things like when she looks at a shrine on a on a road you know on the side of a road she kind of looks at it from an exotic americanized lens instead of sort of digging deep into how the temple is the contested site for dalits for which many of us still continue to be killed because entering a temple for a dalit person is considered it is punishable by murder many dalit people even today when they enter temples the idea is that they will pollute or desecrate this sacred space 
because our presence is a pollutant and she kind of misses these points so while she uses the original system the indian caste system as this allegory she ignores dalit people not completely she has interviews i'm not saying that this is completely missed but the true aspect and pain of and trauma of dalit folks is kind of missing in the narrative even on the same level as nazi germany and the plight of jewish folks you know which i mean understandably one can argue and say but it is a book about the race uh, racial hierarchy in the united states which is fair enough but then didn't india deserve at least the same space as germany does my issue with that was that even in this inequality of inequalities dalits don't get to be the main characters in their own stories which brings us to our last question which is about your book where you are the main character of your own story <laughs> thankfully and it's a great story yeah <laughs> thank and, you and, and specifically there i the, the, my only issue is that there's a line there that says i spent almost a year at columbia learning about race class and colonialism and I don't know maybe it fell in the edit what happened to the part about the dashing young israeli that you met there <laughs> I think my editor my editor decided that we needed to keep that for the second just one just gets to the senses <laughs> no but I, i do i do realize though yashka we asked you at the very beginning i think we asked you something along the lines of like why did you write this book and then we got pulled into like a million directions but just as as their final like answer for us would you mind just explaining why this book was so important to you and why you felt it needed to be told yeah so like i was mentioning at the beginning of this conversation after graduating from columbia i was thinking about how i would I was still in the process of discovering my own identity which also happened to be dalit and um, i was also for the first time removed from the physical presence of the question of my caste people in india i would be worried that my caste would be discovered i would be found out i would be outed but in the united states being in new york being away from primarily south asian community i could relax and breathe and get some objective distance and while i was still doing that i encountered this letter that was written by this brilliant dalit activist student uh, rohit bemula and he was facing this kind of institutional discrimination and casteism at his university in hyderabad where he was a phd student um and he was actually using his voice uh, as a student leader to kind of speak out against that and the how the administration was retaliating and he was driven to commit suicide and he wrote this beautiful last letter and it's it feels some a, a little you know it feels not right to say that his last letter was so beautiful because you know he could have still been alive would we still be talking about that but that's just the nature of how this narrative developed that i read that last letter and i had realized that i'd never read anything by a dalit person before in english or any other language and that just made me feel at so many levels that that story could have been my own story where if i wasn't hiding my identity and if i was speaking out in you know for people from my community then that could have been me and it also made me reflect on you know and i know adani hate this word but it made me reflect on the relative privilege that i had the the fact that i was able to hide my caste the fact that i was at columbia the fact that i was removed from this question 
And I realized that I wanted to create a space where Dalits like me could discuss and be open with our traumas or be, you know, or talk about how traumatic it is to be a Dalit person in India, which is a narrative I didn't see anywhere. And I decided to launch a Tumblr called Documents of Dalit Discrimination. Um, and I realized that I can't ask anyone to talk about their trauma until I am doing it first. Like this will, this felt wrong. So I decided to write a Facebook note where, where which I called uh, Today I'm Coming Out as Dalit. And I talked about being a Dalit person, working in media for about seven eight years at that point and hiding my caste and living in this constant fear, uh, you know, the history of my family, that note kind of went viral. And I was just thrown into this deep end of this discourse on Dalit issues. And being a journalist, I obviously, you know, the, I, the option was to sink or swim and I swam and, you know, I was part of this narrative, this whole idea of what it means to be Dalit. How do you assert your identity in a positive way? Reclaiming this, this shame that we have been forced to endure in our caste and turning that into pride. And eventually, a couple of, I mean, I guess a month later, I was offered a book deal. And like I mentioned earlier, I didn't want to write it. But when this opportunity came to me, I knew I was finally free to talk about my own story because I wasn't hiding anymore. And that's what the book was. And when is it getting published in the US, Yash? Uh, that's for American publishers to decide. I mean, Call we have an audience. <laughs> <laughs> Call her up, offer her an American book deal. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we have space for to discuss the American interpretation of caste. Do we have the space to discuss the original idea? Or it, especially when there, there are so many prominent Indian Americans in the United States, including the current uh, vice president-elect. So that's a question that I'll maybe on the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. I can update you. Certainly in reference to all the intellectual warfare we've discussed here your book being published here will certainly be a victory of sorts absolutely well i really i really hope that that happens because i really really enjoyed this book yashka it was so well written i learned so much it, your story was so compelling and i really hope that it does get published here so that other people can do so in the meantime where can they follow you yash so I'm at Yashka Dutt on Twitter and Instagram, um, sporadically active um, <laughs> on both platforms. <laughs> when I have something to say, I do say it, but I'm not constantly tweeting every day. Well, thank you for taking the time to say some beautiful things with us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Yash. Thank you for having me here. This was like a reunion almost. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> enjoy being 23. Yes. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Please follow us on uncertain.substack.com and wherever you got your podcast. If you're feeling the Christmas spirit, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Check us out at UncertainPod on Twitter and Instagram and tell your friends. Until next time, stay sane.